sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the uh, books surrounding you are those used to research our show and the uh, individual here to my right, along with uh, managing our domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from the sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. Well, I do hope all our listeners are weathering these trying times and Remaining healthy? Yes, even if you aren't sick yourself, or even if you don't have any friends or loved ones who have been directly affected. Just the disruption to everything. It can all be very taxing. Yes, the uh, shortages. We've been lucky there, as uh, I've long made a habit of keeping larders full. I wouldn't call it stockpiling. Well... Being prepared, expecting the ebb and flow and uh, the occasional tragedy... The lessons of history. I've been saying something like this was coming. Yes, the bees, your special bees. The grandmother bees. You could hear it in their humming. It's not just me. Mother noticed it with hers, too. Everyone's being affected. I know, and it's impossible to prepare for everything. We just heard today, for instance, that the company I use for venison is postponing any deliveries until... May, at the earliest. At least the hives are safe. Uh, Mrs. Carswell plastered her homemade biohazard signs all over her hives, uh, suggesting they were some sort of hotbed of uh, COVID-19. Well, some things helped. We haven't had any more attempts on the honey this week. But, as I pointed out, bears can't read. I thought you decided it was Mr. Petrovich, not bears. Uh, Mr. Petrovich is a former employee of mine who seems to be living in the uh, adjacent woods. You keep changing your mind on that. Hmm. Well, I spoke to the police about this, and they were most unhelpful. They said to call animal control, which is also a dead end. Animal control won't have anything to do with Mr. Petrovich. No, not in his human form. But I did also call a private detective. I didn't know you did that. Well, because that went nowhere also. As soon as I mentioned the Usari, he told me he wasn't taking any more cases until after the pandemic, suddenly. He was quite eager to get off the phone once it got a bit complicated. I told you no one would believe this Usari idea. Well... Mr. Petrovich is from Serbia, and that is one of the countries where the Osari can be found. But you never asked him if he was a gypsy. No, it seemed it might be awkward. Everyone makes that awkward with the language. I know Romani can be the preferred word, but I understand that the people themselves often embrace the word gypsy. In any case, the Asari see themselves as a rather distinct group. Because they can turn themselves into bears? Because of their special relationship to bears as hereditary bear trainers. I didn't mention anything to the detective about transformations. He was 
already impatient enough when I try to explain the history of bear training. Well, I appreciate the effort. At least the hive seems safe, for now. And I want to see them stay like that. I'm just trying to take whatever practical steps I can. Uh, in any case, um, we should get going. I know you want to have that mask back on within the next hour. Yes, thank you. Episode 45, The Plague Doctor Unmasked. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to uh, further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive a number of unique and sometimes handcrafted rewards, uh, things related to the show and its themes. And I'll have more on Patreon at the end of the episode and hope you'll consider doing your part to keep this show uh, coming out regularly during these quarantined days. As you already know from the title, our show addresses the plague because that's something that seems timely and interesting to many out there. Uh, certainly there's more than one show's worth of content related to this topic, but we also don't want to add to anyone's distress with all of this. So I'd like to request that uh, listeners let me know what they think about uh, further plague episodes, not necessarily back-to-back -back episodes, but in general. Just message via the website or Facebook group to share a thought on that. We've all been affected by these tragic times. We must maintain our faith in the Lord and our faith in one another. May the Lord have mercy on your soul. There's a chance he might have a plague. As in the plague. Great plague of London. Black Death. The victims were tended by plague doctors. The lab results came back on your Ludgate site. That's proof of plague. The name Cutter that was on the wall? It was the name of a plague doctor. The children that died here, I think he murdered them. We've been hearing a mix of cinematic bits inspired by our theme, among them clips from the 2008 film The Sick House, in which the spirit of a plague doctor menaces an archaeologist, and the 2019 film The Cleansing, in which a malevolent bird-masked cleanser stalks through 14th century Wales. But cinematic appearances of the plague doctor can't really sum up his uh, popularity and how in the last decades he's gone rather viral, if you'll pardon the expression. Black, crow-like profile pleases the gothic crowd, and the long, dark coat mimics the sort of action hero, and the goggles must have helped him ride the uh, steampunk wave to popularity. But I don't need to explain his appeal to this audience, I'm sure. A number of you may even own such a mask. Don't want to belabor the basics or discuss the obvious. In fact, let's just get that out of the way 
right now. So, the reason the mask was beaked as it is was to make space for a particular herb or ingredients whose aromatic qualities were believed to negate the effect of any plague-carrying air breathed in. Uh, this notion of the disease's spread by miasma or uh, poisoned air was a carryover from the classical era and lasted actually until the advent of germ theory in the 1880s. And the ingredients stuffed in that beak, uh, they're variously reported, dried flowers of various sorts, spices, juniper berries, myrrh, camphor, or even a vinegar-soaked sponge. There, now, I got that out of the way, what you can read on the internet. The thing is, many of these um, well-known assumptions may not be well-founded in fact. One common misconception, for instance, is that these figures roamed Europe during the Middle Ages, when in fact we don't hear of any such thing until the 17th century. The first time we see a representation of the plague doctor is in a 1656 broadsheet published in Nuremberg, Germany, with an illustration by Paulus Fürst. It shows the character with the familiar bird mask, long coat, broad-brimmed hat, gloves, and with a sort of pointer or wand grasped in one hand. That same image was copied in another German broadsheet the same year by the artist Gerhard Alzenbach. It's all but traced from uh, Paulus Furst's uh, image, except for emitting gloves and uh, flipping the image from left to right. And then there's another German copy from around them that turns the figure back facing left again and adds a little dark shading to the cloak, but is otherwise identical. And then another round of these copies begins circulating around 1720, and the images appearing in the 19th and 20th century are themselves pretty much based on these 17th and 18th century copies. And our original Paulus Furst image itself turns out to be a copy of a now lost 1656 broadsheet published in Rome and illustrated by one Sebastiano Zacchini. The point of all this is that the image we have of the plague doctor is hardly based on a variety of models drawn from life, but from iterations of a single drawing. If that's not enough to start you wondering about how common these figures might have been, or if they even existed, the text provided on First's uh, source image raises even more questions. It's titled, Dr. Beak of Rome, Clothing Against Death. Below the text, it reads, in part, You believe it is a fable that is written about Dr. Beak, who flees the contagion and snatches his wage from it. He seeks cadavers to eke out a living, just like the raven on the dung heap. So many a one believes without doubt that he is touched by a black devil. His hell is called purse, and the souls he fetches are gold. Sounds more like a, a creepy lampooning of the medical profession than explanation of a gear worn to negate miasmic perils. There's no mention of any special uh, medicinal herbs or aromatics in that beak, for instance. And given that the doctor's uh, gloved fingers in this illustration end in exaggerated bird-like talons, which do disappear in future copies, you might look at those and understandably conclude that the talons and the beak 
are both just there in the service of a metaphor, that of a doctor as greedy, carrying crow. But wait, perhaps you've seen actual photos of uh, plague doctor masks exhibited in museums. Of course, some museums recreate the figure based upon the crow-like first image, but there are also two uh, actual artifacts on display in Germany. One is in the German Museum of Medical History in the town of Ingolstadt, uh, location of Dr. Frankenstein's imaginary alma mater, by the way. And the other uh, is in Berlin's uh, German Historical Museum. Both of these are surprisingly similar in appearance and decidedly less crow-like. They're basically brown hoods that look like uh, suede or velvet with glassed eye holes and a funnel-shaped cloth extension in the place of that uh, crow-like beak. However, uh, in a 2017 interview in conjunction with related exhibition, museum director Marion Rüssinger admits that the uh, provenance and authenticity of this uh, Ingolstadt mask is uh, in question, as it was only obtained from an art dealer in 2002. And she points out that the tip of the beak is sewn shut providing no ventilation, and the eyes are so wide-set as to make visibility very difficult or impossible. Her evaluation of the Berlin specimen was uh, similarly um, skeptical. Given the uh, surprising similarity of the two masks, you might assume they were perhaps reproductions crafted by the same artist. Of course, it's not unheard of for questionable artifacts to make their way into museums, particularly uh, an object of such intense public fascination. Uh, this was the case, for instance, in another German museum in the town of Nuremberg, where in 1802, an Iron Maiden, the only known example of this uh, dreaded device, went on display. One which was later revealed to have been fabricated based on illustrations enlivening and Nuremberg guidebook. Sadly, no evidence for such a device existed before guidebook author Johann Siebenkase seems to have created it strictly from his imagination. So, all lies, but our lives are richer for it. But please, don't lose hope. We have another potential plague doctor mask to look at, and for that we have to go to Venice. I'm not talking here about the masks created for carnival, we'll get to those, but the real thing that we wore in during the plague. There's always the question of which plague with Venice, as it's endured 22 of them. Along with the port cities of Genoa and Messina, Venice was a European gateway for the plague, starting with its initial outbreak in 1348, what we call the Black Death, the medieval plague. But again, our masks wouldn't be from that period, it would be from what's known as the second pandemic, which had a major outbreak in Venice in 1576 through 77, one that killed nearly a third of the city's population. But oddly, Venice fared better during the plague years than many other cities in Italy, thanks to its early founding in 1486 of a board of public health. Realizing the dangers of importing the disease through shipping, Venetian health officials created the first 40-day quarantine on ships docking in their city. 
And, uh, in fact, they gave us the word quarantine from the uh, Venetian word for 40. The areas designated for quarantine ships and their passengers were called lazaretti, a word originally used for leper colonies run by religious orders and named for St. Lazarus, a figure from a parable told by Jesus, a beggar covered with sores assumed to be the result of leprosy. Venetians segregated their afflicted, both lepers and plague victims, to small islands in their lagoon. The first of these, known as the old Lazaretto, the Lazaretto Vecchio, opened in 1423 and was superseded in 1468 by a new iteration, the uh, Lazaretto Nuovo. Excavations have revealed mass graves, uh, victims of disease, on both of these islands, including the discovery of a skeleton buried with a brick stopping its mouth, the uh, the uh, vampire burial I discussed in our Shroud Eaters episode. Other islands, uh, San Clemente and San Tavolo, also uh, housed lepers and the insane. The most discussed of all these islands devoted to medical isolation is Povelia, which from 1776 to 1814 was used both to segregate those suffering from the plague or those suspected to be and uh, also as a uh, maritime lazaretto uh, quarantining uh, the ships and passengers and goods uh, simply as a matter of precaution. Povelia is where the uh, plague mask comes in. So while uh, crews on quarantine ships waited their 40 days, they were not entirely cut off from the outside world. They could send and receive mail, which brings us to our next bit of evidence. In 1903, German public health scholar Theodor Weil uh, published in his volume Handbook of Hygiene a photo he'd found on Povelia in 1899. It shows two men, one holding what looks like a waffle iron, and the other is wearing a mask with a funnel-like beak similar to the uh, German masks. Weil's uh, accompanying texts notes that the mask is similar to those worn by French plague doctors, and explains that the device was used to make small holes in outgoing mail to uh, facilitate the penetration of disinfectants. Um, other sources explain how uh, outgoing quarantined mail at Povelia and other lazaretti was uh, sprinkled and steamed with vinegar, a substance believed for centuries to counter the plague. So, was this a contemporary mask still worn against the plague in the late 19th century, or is the man merely modeling a mask from a collection of plague-fighting equipment of previous times? There may be a clue in the 1900 book Historical Notes on the Plague by Raphael Blanchard, which reprints a watercolor by a colleague of the author, commenting, This interesting bind was made at the Venice Lazarette. The helmet in question comes from the 17th century or the first years of the 18th century. It is made of a kind of very flexible waxed canvas, the color and malleability of the plastics. The beak is in bronze and consists of two lateral slats closed at the bottom by a mesh. The watercolor looks very similar to the mask in the photo. If they're the same, our second source is implying that the mask in the photo and watercolor are actual relics of 17th and 18th century plague fighting. If the mask and the photo and watercolor are not the same, then perhaps the older mask served as a model for the newer mask worn to uh, disinfect mail and for who knows what else. 
Unfortunately, the centuries-old mask in the watercrawler doesn't seem to have made it into any public collection, though at the time of the book's publication in 1903, it was said to be stored by the Institute of Hygiene at the University of Rome. So, there does seem to be an actual plague mask out there, just not one any of us can personally gawk at. But before leaving Povelia, it would be remiss not to mention the legendary status this island has attained, in part probably due to its being forbidden to visitors since 1968. And also, like the other Lazzaretti in the Venetian Lagoon, Povelia was also used as an insane asylum from 1922 till 1968. And a number of modern legends propagated within the ghost hunting community tell of sadistic doctors and torture and suicides. And though it's not been excavated, the island is also assumed to have a massive plague pit, giving rise to rumors that half of the island's soil consists of human bones. And all of this was woven together and greatly popularized in a 2009 episode of Ghost Adventures, in which intrepid ghost hunter Zach Bagans dons a plague doctor mask in an effort to bully some plague ghosts into uh, making an appearance. Are you a murderer, you bastard? I cannot see you. Show yourself. Show yourself. Yeah, taunting you. What are you going to do about it? Come on. My camera just totally malfunctioned. I'm feeling something that's making my body react. Look at that. That right there is a Oh my god. So it's safe to say that some form of mask and protective suit was worn by doctors uh, during the second pandemic in Italy and also in France, it seems, where the suit originated. In particular, its creation is usually attributed to Charles de Lhomme, a royal physician to Louis XIV and the Medici family, among others. He was a graduate of the oldest European school of medicine at the University of Montpellier and was said to have devised the suit and mask in response to a plague hitting Paris in 1619. While Delorme never uh, wrote about the topic, as far as I can find, and despite some uh, misattributions out there, uh, the link between the suit and the inventor seems to have been formed by the theologian Michel Saint-Martin in a biography of uh, Delorme written in 1682. That would be 63 years after his uh, presumed invention of this uh, suit and mask. Delorme's creation he characterizes as a suit of... Moroccan leather. That is, soft goat leather, and a mask of the same with... A long nose of half a foot to deflect the malignity of the air. Samartin describes Delorme taking garlic and rue in his mouth and fumigating his nose and ears with incense and covering his eyes with spectacles. Saint-Martin notes that the suit was later presented as a gift from Delorme to his uh, court surgeon uh, Théophraste Renaudot whose daughter, uh, quite rightly I'd say, regarded the suit as uh, dangerous and potentially infectious and disposed of it. A point that could also explain the scarcity of other uh, plague gear and collections elsewhere. Around the time of Delorme's invention, elsewhere in France, other protective garments were employed. In a 1622 treatise on the plague in Rouen by physician Jean de Lampierre, he writes that 
Like those in other regions, those attending the sick there wear over their normal clothing tunics that can be closed tightly at the necks and wrists, and that these garments are slicked with a mixture of wax, camphor, and a dozen or so other presumably prophylactic ingredients. Raphael Blanchard, in his uh, 1900 book Historical Notes on the Plague, observes that Capuchin monks caring for plague victims in the town of Gap in southeastern France in 1630 put on grey canvas gowns, which descended to the middle of their legs, put on boots, and put on gloves with only two fingers open. And monks doing the same in Elbeuf in Normandy in 1636 wore gowns, capes, and hats of gummed canvas. Presumably treated with concoctions similar to those used by the uh, medics of Rouen in 1622. Italian author A. A. Fraffi, in his 1840 book, Plague and Public Health Administration, likewise mentions that during the uh, plague of 1630, officials in the city of Lucca, near Pisa, imitated the practice of the French doctors, ordering doctors dress in long waxed cloth, employing hoods with crystals set in the eyes. Elsewhere, I also see uh, unsourced or uh, less specific references to similar sounding gear said to have been used in Genoa, Florence, Bologna, and Nijmegen, Holland. Collectively, all this does help make a stronger case for plague doctors as we imagine them. But perhaps one of the best references comes from Switzerland. It combines not only a depiction closely matching the familiar image, but also a name of the doctor wearing the suit depicted. It's a 17th century painting on a copper panel of the family arms of the Zwinger family of Basel. On either side of a shield stand two figures, on the right a scholarly looking gentleman in a ruff, and on the left a character in a bird-like mask with goggles, white hat, gloves, and long mantle. It's believed to have been painted for Theodor Zwinger the Younger, a doctor and theologian known for assisting citizens of Basel through the plague of 1629. The two figures, we might guess, represent his two professions. The Plague Doctors Ensemble, I'm pleased to say, features not only a classic crow-like mask, but is completely black from head to toe, an outfit worthy of any horror movie. There's one more aspect to these costumes I'd like to discuss. We've looked at uh, its intended protective function, but there was also a symbolic element that would be good to understand. The wide black hat, like the wigs worn by lawyers, could, in its uh, context, serve to identify the wearer as a physician. And this could be said even more so for the color and style of the coat or gown, which would not have been black everywhere. In fact, red is more often cited as a color worn by medical help during the plague. An early example occurs with the plague of 1517 in Troyes, France, where those caring for the sick or moving corpses were outfitted in red leather and wore bells to warn of their approach. Red clothing and bells worn on the feet identified plague workers in Milan during the outbreak of 1629 to 30. In Paris, special midwives delivering babies in plague-afflicted homes were called red midwives for the color of their outfits. But in Normandy, the doctors wore black gowns marked with white crosses front and back. Other categories of workers there dealing with the sick or handling corpses were designated with other colors, uh, purple or 
white crosses worn on the back or on armbands. Another signifier of the physician's status would be the wand or baton I mentioned Dr. Beak holding at the top of our show. This is usually, though not always, featured in copies of this drawing, though in the first one there's a detail that's omitted in every other copy, and that is a pair of wings topping the wand, a touch more clearly identifying it as a sort of caduceus, the symbol of medicine. Functionally, this stick is also described as being used to direct patients' movements during examinations or for prodding the uh, swollen buboes left by the disease. Sticks like this are also mentioned as a method of social distancing, a means of pushing back the approach of sick individuals. Almost always, the color of the stick is designated as white, a specific color being another reminder that its function must also be symbolic. While the physician was theoretically accorded high status due to his learning, his frequent ineffectiveness led to him being uh, widely disdained, or even, as with Dr. Beak, regarded as a sort of greedy, grim reaper. The contempt in which the populace often held the doctor, as well as the role his dress played in identifying him, is marked uh, by an incident in the life of the Dutch scholar and philosopher Erasmus. Upon entering Bologna during the time of the plague, his religious habit was mistaken by the crowd for the gown of a physician, and he was set upon by a mob narrowly escaping with his life when a friend offered his home as a hiding place. Of course, it was not only fear and contempt with which the plague doctor was regarded. Some cities paid quite handsomely to recruit these uh, medics from afar when local physicians proved useless against the plague. Unlike Charles de Lorme, who was associated with the royal family, plague doctors usually were community servants employed by the city to treat patients of all classes. While the plague suit was probably regarded as cutting-edge technology associated with the university-trained physicians and their theories, most plague doctors, because of the risk involved in these interactions, would not be uh, comfortably established professionals, but would be younger medics eager to prove themselves, or even those without higher education, this barber surgeons or other workers with the sick specializing in hands-on practice rather than diagnosis and medical theory. During these times, the medic's role necessarily might consist of little more than visiting the sick to prepare reports on the extent of the outbreak to determine who was indeed infected and what homes might need to be quarantined or, or as someone to assist the dying in preparing for death or to take final testaments or just to help move away the corpses. As I mentioned at the beginning of our show, a number of illustrations of these plague suits and masks appeared around 1720, one of which also identifies a particular physician associated with the suit. Uh, most of these reference the suit's use in the Great Plague of Marseille, which took place from 1721 to 1722. While um, these depictions uh, largely seem to be copies from our 1656 prototype, there's an interesting outlier by uh, Swiss artist Johann Fusli, portraying a doctor in more of a um, frock coat and breeches with a uh, decidedly non-bird-like mask. Uh, its caption... Sketch of a doctor of Marseille clad in cordovan leather, equipped with a nose case packed with plague-repelling smoking material. With the wand, he is to feel the pulse. 
The accusation that doctors claimed to uh, feel a patient's pulse through their sticks was a common joke or criticism that can be found in other sources. Regardless of the uh, style or use of special plague gear or costume, the uh, 1720 outbreak in Marseille seems worth discussing in some detail as it was the last major incidence of bubonic plague in Europe and a particularly devastating one. The Marseille plague claimed the lives of some 50,000 residents of the city and another 50,000 in the surrounding countryside before it was over. But to help you um, visualize the extent of all this more vividly, we'll be pulling some passages from a historical account of the plague at Marseille written by Jean-Baptiste Bertrand in 1805. He begins his account describing a meeting of the town aldermen. They discuss the exhalations coming from the graves and the difficulty getting rid of those bodies piling up on the streets. The ravages of the disease were so terrible that more died in one day than could be removed in four. The time required to transport the bodies to the graveyard or plague pit is judged to be the problem. So it's suggested that they might just be buried within the city itself, under the streets. But buried water lines prohibit this, it's then suggested that the corpses might just be heaped up right there in the streets and buried not under earth but under quicklime but no such quantity of lime can be obtained a great bonfire of corpses is suggested but it was here objected that the infection proceeding from the bodies burned was no less dangerous than what proceeded from them when left to corrupt in the streets most outrageous of all is the suggestion that they Fill one of the largest vessels in the port with the dead, then to tow it out into the open sea and there sink it. Any number of objections are raised to this, with the author contributing the most fantastically grotesque scenario. And besides, it being a well-known fact, that when a body has been a certain time underwater, so that all its parts are swelled to a degree that it becomes of equal volume with the water itself, it rises and floats to the surface. Was it not to be feared that so great a quantity of dead bodies might have force sufficient at length to raise the vessel and carry the contagion floating upon the sea? Eventually, it seems the bodies were much less dramatically stacked up within the crypts of the local churches and covered with lime. While all this is ghastly enough, there was something of a reprieve in the autumn of 1720 when residents began to cautiously return to the town's streets. But this was done with a caution and reserve that showed that they were yet far from feeling a perfect confidence in the safety of such a step. Our adventurers further carried poles of eight or ten feet long, which obtained the name of Batons of St. Roach. St. Roach was a patron saint of plague victims. And with these, they kept at a distance all who passed for fear of being touched. Above all, they kept away the dogs, who, since the idea that they could imbibe the contagion, had been considered as a very formidable class of beings. Nothing could indeed be more comic than to see persons thus walking with these long poles in their hands. Uh, perhaps something to consider for our eventual reemergence from self 
quarantine. So uh, during this period, the author also notes that a general license was seen to reign among the people. And that some seized on houses left vacant by the mortality. Others forced open those which were shut up or only guarded by persons incapable of resistance. They forced open the closets and drawers and took away whatever they found most precious. An interesting legendary element comes from this, uh, that of something called Four Thieves Vinegar, or sometimes Marseille Vinegar. Vinegar, as I mentioned, was long regarded as an aid against the plague. And this is a special concoction with uh, certain additional aromatics added with which the thieves entering the plague-stricken homes doused themselves in order to be immune from the disease itself. As uh, camphor was one of the ingredients, it was used in later times as a sort of smelling salts. And even today, recipes going under this name are still prized for various restorative properties in uh, holistic circles. Now, this uh, book we've been referencing also reports on certain doctors hired by the city of Marseille to combat the plague. One of these is Francois Chicogneau, uh, who, along with our Swiss Dr. Zwinger, is the one other case I've found of a particular doctor specifically said to have donned a plague mask and suit. A second uh, French woodcut from 1721 depicts him posed and outfitted in the manner uh, almost identical to the 1656 image, the first image, along with the text. Monsieur Chicaneau, Chancellor of the University of Montpellier, sent by the King to Marseille in his dress, calls against death. It is leather with a mask, with eyes of crystal and a nose filled with perfumes. He holds a wand in his hand to indicate various actions to be performed. Chicognaud fits our model of the uh, plague doctor as a young graduate, one eager to establish himself. He arrives in Marseille with his uh, cousin Antoine Dédier uh, and a third doctor, Jean Vigny. He is put up in fine quarters, given servants, and made head of a newly created hospital. But according to our author, the resources thus lavished come to little. The doctors first offer one theory and treatment, then another, uh, perform some autopsies more in the service of confirming pet theories than medical problem solving, and they squabble over divergent diagnostic approaches, and then issue a final report to the residents of the city, one which is contemptuously described by our author. From physicians so distinguished, a work was expected answerable to the reputation they had acquired full of deep research on the nature of the malady and useful discoveries on the means of curing it. It will easily be imagined then, what was the surprise of the public, to find in this relation nothing but a simple and meager enumeration of the symptoms of the malady, which they already knew by fatal experience. All of which recalls our description of the nefarious Dr. Beak with whom we started. Well, this uh, outbreak of 1720-21 is the last we hear of plague masks being used. Our survey would hardly be complete without addressing that version of the mask worn in the Venice Carnival. As it turns out, these are modern additions, unlike the masks representing other characters worn for centuries. However, several of the older masks feature similar long noses, 
those of the uh, characters uh, Scaramouche and uh, the Capitano, for instance. And uh, given Venice's long history with the plague, it shouldn't be surprising that an innovative mask maker might add a plague doctor mask to his offerings. Mask making has long been a thriving year-round business, uh, catering more to tourists than native Venetian carnival goers. Perhaps a tourist uh, eager to purchase a Capitano mask he thought was a plague doctor gave an artisan the idea. Who knows? The uh, Capitano and Scaramouche figures I've mentioned are stock characters from the Commedia dell'arte, a form of uh, comic theater from which uh, the traditional Venetian carnival masks derive. Popular throughout the 16th to 18th century, masked uh, commedia players uh, performed usually outdoors on piazzas and temporary stages, improvising around stock characters, storylines, and gags. The uh, figure we know as uh, Harlequin, that is Arlecchino, is uh, for instance one of these characters. Another is the doctor, Il Dottore. Thanks to the carnival masks, you'll sometimes see writers attempting to tie him in with the, the plague doctor. But in fact, he's more the um, PhD kind of doctor, a blustering, pompous buffoon outfitted in a scholar's gown and half-mask, not resembling the plague mask in the least. Because he purports to be an expert on anything and everything, there seem to be a couple storylines in which he plays a medical doctor, but there are no references I can find to the plague. However, there is another connection between the Commedia dell'arte and medicine, and perhaps the plague. Many scholars have noted that traveling merchants of elixirs and placebos attempting to uh, draw crowds in town squares employed clowns and acrobats, singers and jugglers and comedians who improvised routines that would become the traditions of Commedia dell'arte. And of course, there's no better time to hawk elixirs and so forth than when the plague is rumored to be moving through the lands. So. Comedy and tragedy as always intertwined. <laughs> You're supposed to brighten up a place so laugh, clown laugh. Ain't a lot of smiles around your face and laugh, clown, ah, but don't frown. And in the spirit of uh, comedy meets tragedy and in hopes of lifting uh, spirits in these uh, plague days of our own, I thought I'd end with this song from 1928, Laugh, Clown, Laugh. Some of you will recognize this as the title of a film starring that master of silent horror, Lon Chaney Sr. Its uh, tragic story is based on an Italian play, Ridi Pagliazzi, that is, Laugh, Clowns, as in the uh, aria from the opera Pagliazzi. And this is an opera, of course, about Commedia dell'arte performers. Though the 1928 film was a silent production, it was released with a soundtrack of some sort, or at least this song. You're supposed to brighten up a place, so laugh, Was played in theaters as a sort of overture before the screenings. Sheet music featuring Cheney on the cover was also released, and several versions of the song were issued on 78s the year the film premiered, uh, one of which uh, claimed the number one slot in the charts of the day. The film, which is actually a melodrama rather than horror, albeit with some 
really dark undertones, was Cheney's favorite. And the role in this song was remembered at his funeral when a concealed organist played Laugh, Clown, Laugh as his coffin was lowered into the grave. No matter how much it may hurt, I must keep on acting, 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 just like Pagliacci. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you uh, might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends if you do. We'd also love to hear your feedback specific to the plague topic, as I mentioned. We've heard and would love to continue hearing how this uh, show helps entertain and distract you during these uh, times of isolation. If it's done so and you are able, we'd also love to have your support through Patreon. You can find the link to that on our website, bonedcycle.com, or just Google us. Uh, Patreon members have a choice of rewards, including exclusive access to extra elements that go into the making of the podcast, digital downloads of rare books used in the preparation of the show, the show soundscapes you hear in the background, my Krampus book, and a special mystery kit mailed to our top-level donors. Donation levels begin at $1 a month, and your support via Patreon is the sole support that pays for the more than 100 hours of work that goes into each episode. A special thanks to our new patrons, Tammy Shelley, Michael, uh, we'll just say Michael N., uh, Mark Tripp, and Andy Forrester. Thanks also to uh, Gwen for upping her pledge. That's a bit fewer names than normal, but of course we understand things are hard now. If you can't donate, another thing also valuable would be to uh, leave a review, as these are our best way to raise the show's profile and visibility on Apple Podcasts and other outlets. If you haven't yet, you might want to visit our website, boneandcycle.com, and there you'll find the links to our Facebook group, Twitter, and Instagram, along with show notes with plenty of images and video links to the uh, film trailers and clips and music used in the program. Sound design, otherwise, is original for the show. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer, and Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture You can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.